in the second part of chapter five uh, lecture, I'll talk about balanced scorecard and triple bottom line, which integrate qualitative and quantitative measures of firm performance. Then I will talk about um, and walk you through ways in which firms earn money, revenue, or namely business models. A balanced scorecard method takes into account four main success factors or indicators, customer satisfaction, economic value creation that includes valuations of both costs and customers' reservation prices, core competencies that are ingrained in firms' historical practices and skills and help firm implement um, and help firms implement value creation strategy, and finally, shareholder satisfaction. As you may recognize, this method explicitly includes two of the three traditional measurement methods I told you in the previous lecture, shareholder value creation and economic value creation. We don't view of the accounting data as one of the four dimensions in this method. Why? Because as you may remember from the previous lecture, all these three additional measures are correlated then you're doing well in the stock market or your customers highly value your products and services, then your accounting profitability will reflect this success sooner or later. Accounting data would be a checking mechanism to see that you're doing well in all aspects. Before turning to the discussion on each of the four dimensions in the model, let's talk a little bit about what balanced scorecard is. Balanced scorecard, is, um, was originally developed as a framework measuring organizational performance using balanced set of performance measures, meaning both financial and non-financial considerations. It is a holistic view that includes and connects elements such as strategic planning, mission and vision statement, and change management or customer segmentation. The system has evolved over years and now it is considered as a fully integrated strategic planning and performance management system that helps an organization improve internal and external communications, align business activities to vision and strategy, and monitor performance against the strategic goals. Therefore, the purpose of the balanced scorecard is to help management determine its strategy, communicate its strategy, align individuals, departments, and efforts with the strategy, and monitor the effectiveness of strategy execution. Once the balanced scorecard has been implemented, it can be used as a part of a learning system that gives feedback to management so they can adjust and improve the alignment of the firm's resources to improve the implementation of the strategy. It takes a top-down approach. It starts with the top level of organizational objectives with the mission and the vision of the business. It also helps us identify KPIs, key performance indicators from four different perspectives. And a, a consequence of using balanced scorecard is that you can see a broader report, including both financial and non-financial measures of your company. Management can use uh, a variety of financial and non-financial metrics to measure the firm performance with this uh, tool. Uh, 
However, an effective scorecard, balanced scorecard, is more than just a collection of a variety of objectives and measures. The objectives of the firm should be driven by the firm's chosen strategy, and the metrics chosen should reflect the success at achieving these objectives. The objectives and metrics included in the scorecard should reflect both the desired outcomes and the drivers of those outcomes. If management created a strategy map for the firm, the objectives in the scorecard should align with the objectives in the strategy map. The balanced scorecard should reflect a theory of what strategy will lead to success and a hypothesis regarding the if-then relationships that will lead to effective strategy execution. For profit-seeking enterprises, these causal paths should ultimately lead to financial objectives. For example, an auto repair business might have the following if-then relationships that are reflected in its balanced scorecard. If mechanics are better trained, then they will be more, they will more frequently correctly identify problems and repair vehicles on the first attempt. If vehicles are repaired correctly on the first attempt, then more customers will be satisfied. If more customers are satisfied, then more customers will return with repeat business. And if there is more repeat business, then revenues will increase. Measurements will allow uh, management to test the vision and strategy. Success will ultimately be determined by financial results. However, financial results are lagging indicators that may not reflect the success or failure of the business for some time. Frequently, non-financial measures are leading indicators that will give an earlier indication of the strategy's success or failure. These leading indicators can give management earlier signals regarding the eventual success of the current strategy. Positive early signals can give management the courage to stick with a strategy that isn't immediately generating the desired financial results, while negative early signals can cause management to more quickly change strategic direction rather than waiting for returns to improve. Moreover, deter deterioration in the leading indicators could be a precursor to a decline in financial performance that has not yet occurred and more quickly highlight the need for management to take corrective action. There might be different metrics that help us measure customer satisfaction. What extent they return the products, which suggest dissatisfied customers. You can also measure the service in terms of rating, for example, customer service feedback. There are also other ways to measure customer satisfaction when it comes to looking at core competencies or internal processes or focus is on how efficient the business is. Example metrics or key performance indicators might be unit costs to produce a focal service or product or speed at which we introduce new products to markets. For the economic value created within the company, the capability of business on knowledge and innovation or learning can be the focus. Depending on the business, the examples for measuring innovative capacity might be retaining key employees, especially who are involved in product development and innovation. We might also be interested in how efficiently new business ideas flow within our company. For shareholder perspective or dimension, we may identify cash flow, 
stock prices and some other productivity ratios as the key performance indicators, KPIs. Here is a balanced scorecard example for a hypothetical credit card company. Balanced scorecard is actually a strategy map that you can establish to put the alternative routes of your business. For example, for increasing shareholder value, the required initiative can be acquiring a competitor. Similarly, as a company, you may think that increasing market share lies at the heart of implementing a European expansion strategy. All these measures and strategic actions are determined by the executives of the company with agreement. Hence, balanced scorecard is also a communication tool within your company and across departments. Aligning their objectives to achieve the common objective of the whole company can be achieved by balanced scorecard implementation. Balanced scorecard is one of the most commonly used management tools in the world. Bain and company has been tracking the mostly used management tools for years, and balanced scorecard is among the top 10 for all of these years. The same consulting company has found that balanced scorecard not, not only has the high usage rate, but also high satisfaction uh, rate compared to other management tools. Most of the companies surveyed claimed that they were getting value from its usage. Why so? What are the advantages of balanced scorecard as a performance tracking and measuring method? The key advantage of balanced scorecard is that it provides a much broader view on how the business is performing around to its mission and vision than just looking at the income statement and financial performance. It involves everybody in the business, not just the financial people in the company. You even include customers' views in your measurement. Also, it is very flexible to the specific needs of a company. There are many KPIs, uh, key performance uh, indicators that you can include in your firm performance measurement through balanced scorecard method. However, it is not free of limitations. You may end up with too many KPIs. You should not be dealing with too many pieces of data. Also, you need to construct some balance between these four performance perspectives or dimensions. This is not an easy thing to do. Senior managers also like to see numbers and objective results. Hence, they may be too concerned with financial performance. And many bonuses and incentives are mostly tied to uh, financial performance you know, of the numeric measures. This broad perspective to measure firm performance also takes time, but may become obsolete very quickly. Updating it regularly may be burdensome for the company. So these are the disadvantages of a balanced scorecard method. Firm's legitimacy has always been questioned. Why do we as a society need firms? Do capital market or capital markets harm societies and the world? In recent years, firms have increasingly been viewed as a major cause of social, environmental, and economic problems. Companies are perceived to prospering at the expense of the broader community. And the legitimacy of business has fallen tremendously. 
Porter that we know from Five Forces um, framework and generic strategies framework paid attention to that problem in his HBS article and acknowledged the necessity for creating a sustained strategy and the shared value for all society. Shared value is related to sustained economy that cares about people in the economy, the planet as home to all and profits as the motivation for companies and triple bottom line approach all integrates, um, integrates all these perspectives. Sustainability is about overcoming the emphasis on short-term financial performance concerns, paying more attention to the well-being of customers and employees, potential depletion of natural resources, and viability of key suppliers. Rather than a social responsibility mindset, companies should take the lead in bringing shared value mindset to the business operations. Shared value is about creating economic value in a way that also creates value for the society by addressing its needs and challenges. It is more than being socially responsive or charitable, creating a win-win platform for both society and the business. Let's talk about chocolate industry so we understand the sustainability discussion here. Chocolate producers rely mostly on two regions in Africa for chocolate production, Ghana and Ivory Coast. These two regions are highly essential for chocolate industry. However, cocoa farmers earn approximately $1.07 a day. According to many leading manufacturers, this is the direct result of low cocoa yields on small cocoa farms. On top of that, Basic socioeconomic infrastructure, such as primary schools, primary health care, and drinking water is often not present, present in cocoa farms. A very sad but common practice is that the children, ranging in age from 10 to 15, are forced to do harder labor in cocoa fields, and most of them stay with the plantation until they die, never seeing their families again. All these issues related to the cocoa farmers' well-being, yields, access to finance, diseases, and poor agricultural practices introduce a serious threat to cocoa sustainability. Upon repeated warnings by analysts that chocolate would be in limited supply in 2020 because of a scarcity of cocoa beans, and reacting to these reports, many sustainability projects initiated after 2012. One of them was uh, Forever Chocolate. This was a program launched by Swiss-based, um, the world's leading high quality chocolate manufacturers. It put forward the goal to lift over 500,000 cocoa farmers out of poverty by 2025 by focusing on yield improvement. Let's watch the video on this initiative. And this was one of many projects launched in the area and happily ever after. Forever. It isn't a point in time, it's an incredible, everlasting journey. We all love chocolate and want it to be around forever. Because chocolate not only brings joy to people, it has the power to transform lives. 
That's why we've created Forever Chocolate. We're starting a movement to make sustainable chocolate the norm. It's a movement for the entire industry, from farmers to chocolate lovers, from suppliers to governments. Our farmers must prosper, so we will lift more than 500,000 coca farmers out of poverty. We believe children have the right to be children, so we will eradicate child labor from our supply chain. We want nature to thrive, so we will become carbon and forest positive. And we believe all chocolate should be sustainable. So we will offer 100% sustainable ingredients in all of our products. And we will make all of this happen by 2025. We know this won't be easy, but starting a movement never is. We need to find bold new ways of doing business and bring partners together to make it happen. So we invite you, work with us, challenge us, for together we can scale our impact. For chocolate, for everyone, forever. The chocolate companies through these sustainability initiatives so far seem to have fulfilled their goals. According to um, Wall Street Journal in 2018, the cocoa supply broke its record and made it the best performing commodity in 2018. Higher production partly came about as corporations made changes to their cocoa supply chains. Um, and all these shared value initiatives helped farmers in cocoa growing nations um, and they learn to grow more efficiently. There are two main ways to do this, by reconceiving products and markets and redefining productivity in the value chain. Society's needs are huge. Health, better housing, improved nutrition, help for the aging, less environmental damage. Satisfying these needs generate never-ending business opportunities if you ask the relevant question. Are our products good for our customers? How can we improve our products to satisfy the needs of a broader target, which is society? For example, food companies that traditionally concentrated on tastes and quantity to drive more and more consumption are now refocusing on the fundamental need for better and healthy nutrition. The societal benefits of providing appropriate products to lower income and disadvantaged customers can be profound, while the profits for companies can be substantial. For example, in India, Thomson Reuters has developed a promising monthly service for farmers who earn an average of 2000 a year. For a fee of $5 a quarter, it provides weather and crop pricing information and agricultural advice. The service reaches an estimated 2 million farmers and early research indicates that it has helped increase the incomes of more than 60% of them. In some cases, even tripling incomes. Firms can create shared value by redefining productivity in their value chain as well. Dark side of chocolate is a good example of this strategy. Also, by reducing its packaging and cutting 
hundred million uh, miles from the delivery routes of its trucks, Walmart has managed to lower carbon emissions and saved $200 million in costs. Though chemical is another example, the company managed to reduce consumption of fresh water at its largest production site by 1 billion gallons, which is enough water to supply nearly 40,000 40, people in the US for a year, resulting for the company in savings of $4 million. Hindustan Unilever created a new direct-to-home distribution system run by underprivileged female entrepreneurs in Indian villages. Unilever provided microcredit and training to almost 100,000 villages. Under this project, what is called Project Shakti, women got the skills and income while the spread of diseases reduced through increased access to hygiene products. Project Shakti accounts for 5% of Unilever's total revenues in India and built its brand in media dark regions, creating major economic value for the company. As you can see, the logic behind shared value is straightforward. A business needs a successful community to create a demand for its products. A community needs successful businesses to provide jobs and wealth creation opportunities for its citizens. So shared value approach doesn't offer a cost item to businesses or charity mindset for citizens. It is actually about creating a win-win situation for both businesses and the society. Hence, at a very basic level, the competitiveness of a company and the health of the communities around it are closely related. Okay, let's turn to another topic in this chapter, which is business models. It is about how you put your strategy into action how you conduct your business and make money. So this is a post I came across in internet. It is read, I'm trying to make friend outside of Facebook while applying the same principles. Therefore, every day I walk down the street and tell passerbys what I have done the night before, what I'll do later and with whom. I give them pictures of my family dog and me gardening, taking things apart in the garage, watering the lawn, standing in front of landmarks, driving around town, having lunch and doing what anybody and everybody does every day. I also listen to their conversations, give them the thumbs up and tell them I like them. And it works just like Facebook. I already have four people following me, two police officers, a private investigator, and a, and a psychiatrist. Isn't this how Facebook makes money? It may not work out well in real life, but it's just the right type of model to drag people in its platform, online platform, of course, and through ads earn money. For the same business idea, you may come up with different business models. You may um, not remember hipstamatic, but it had the same idea that Instagram had. 
it was, uh, and it was actually before Instagram. So Instagram is a copycat of this forgotten, forgotten app, Hipstamatic. The app revolutionized mobile photography and helped make filtering photos mainstream. After winning Apple's first ever App of the Year award in 2010 upon this photo taken with the app became very famous. The app collected 4 million active users in just a year. But what happened to Hipstamatic? Simple answer is, uh, is that Instagram came and took the throne. But how? With a different business model that appealed to the customers more. Hipstamatic was not for free, while Instagram, as all you know, is free to download and use. You are the customers of Instagram's customers, so you are welcome to the platform. Actually, Instagram is selling you and your shopping appetite to other companies. That is why it welcomes you free. Look at Instagram's logo in 2010. How different and novel it is, right? Very impressive. But here, what makes Instagram win is its business model, not the idea. Business model is how you put your idea and strategy into action. So it's foundational to work with a right business model. Adapt um, it to customer needs and environmental changes accordingly, innovate and find novel disruptive business models for the same service out there, such as Uber, Airbnb. Business model and innovating it is the key for success. Here is what Hipstamatic's founder says after all is gone. It's weird and sometimes sad to look back and realize that we had a major role to play in the very existence of Instagram. There are widely used business models, although it's always possible to invent a new business model, model applicable for your strategy. I don't want to get into details of each of them, but let's briefly define how they work. The first well-known and frequently used revenue model is razor razor blade model. As you might guess, this model was invented by Gillette, which gave away its razors and sold the replacement cartridges for relatively high prices. So this is basically a revenue or business model in which the company offers a durable product such as the razor at a low price, even at a loss, and more than makes um, up for the initial subsidy by charging a high price for the consumable complement, such as the blades over the lifetime of the durable product. So once you purchase the razor, presumably because you think the initial price is reasonable for a gadget that promises a, a close, comfortable shave, you're now locked in because of the property, propriety blade technology and razor blade interface. Gillette can make high margins on the blades you will repeatedly buy from the company over the life of the razor, thus more than making up for any initial subsidy in the price of the razor. This is the simple logic of this model. Who else uses this model? The big adapter of the Gillette's logic is HP and many other printer manufacturing companies. There is even a name for it, Inconomics, because they offer customers the printer, printer for a low price 
and more than make up for it later with high prices for ink cartridges. Um, the second model, well-known model is subscription model. And I think you're very familiar with the subscription model as many businesses rely on this model both today and in the past. Customers in this model are more like renters of the services or products. They are the users of the company's offerings. So these users pay some fee or rent most of the time monthly to get access to the company's products and services. Netflix, Spotify, Amazon Prime, YouTube Premium, all rely on subscription revenue or business model. The pay-as-you-go model. Um, the name simply and clearly explains how it works. As you, um, as a customer, consumes the services or products of the company, you pay the amount you used. Um, utility companies such as National Grid and NSTAR or cell phone service plans are the examples of this business model. So you pay as you consume. In the freemium model, users get to use a basic product or service for free, but must pay for a premium version with additional features. In app purchases, for example, um, in-app purchases, for example, which I'm pretty sure that you all are familiar with, are very good examples of this model. The main aim to make products or services free for a basic version is to drive traffic to companies' website or products and offer a try-before-you-buy experience that overcomes user resistance to paying and convert free users to paying customers. Dropbox is a master of this model. The company has 500 million registered users who receive two gigabytes of free storage. Once they exceed that capacity, uh, customers are offered the option to upgrade to one terabyte for a monthly or annual subscription fee. With this model, Dropbox generated $1 billion in revenue in 2017 from 11 million paying individual and business users and continues to grow its user base. Although Dropbox paints a rosy picture, when companies can't convert enough users to paying customers, they suffer, something we have witnessed with media companies such as The Guardian, New York Times, Washington Post, and others. Also, there is a zero price effect. Simply put, when customers anchor on free, it can be hard to dislodge them. Thus, in addition to extending the premium product lines, companies need to also understand customer behavior and what they respond to. Extending premium product lines may help companies motivate zero price loving users to pay for premium goods. I will keep this one, um, the wholesale business model, very short because it is the traditional model in retail business and it's around for decades. So you basically sell your products to a retailer. So the retailer sells it to the end customers. Take Procter & Gamble. It sells its products to Walmart, which then sells the Procter & Gamble products to us and users. Walmart puts a markup to make profit out of these individual products in the end. 
I think you may be familiar with modeling agencies who represent fashion models to work for the fashion companies. And this is the agency model. Um, or you can think about the agents of players in sports clubs. These agents represents, um, represent the rights of the player, make a salary or transfer fee negotiations and the like. And in return of their services, the agents receive commissions. Lastly, the bundling model. You bundle high and low selling products at a discount to sell low selling products relying on the bet you make on the favorite products demand. Or you simply offer several products in a bundle at a lower price to boost demand. Take office products of Microsoft. Microsoft sells a bundle of office products at a lower price than you would buy each of them separately. You might have seen many examples of price bundling in, in the food service industry, such as pairing main courses with side dishes or condiments. 